So the stats are that 20% of the world's population has IBS. And we know from studies that on average, 60% of IBS, the underlying cause is SIBO. So that's a lot of people. And we really do need to care. Today on the SIBO SOS podcast, we have Dr. Allison Seebecker. If you've done any research on SIBO, if you have checked out Dr. Google to find out about SIBO, then you've probably seen Dr. Seebecker's name. A lot of her friends call her the queen of SIBO. Not sure that's a title she totally wanted, but as a SIBO patient and a SIBO practitioner and a SIBO patient advocate, she does happily wear that as a badge of honor. Dr. Seebecker is a naturopathic physician, a SIBO patient herself, a SIBO specialist, and she does happen to be my SIBO doctor. If you are new to SIBO, this episode is an awesome place to start. We are going to cover what is SIBO? Small intestine bacterial overgrowth, by the way. What causes SIBO? So it's not just post-infectious IBS or food poisoning from the past. There are a lot of factors to consider, and we're gonna explain why you need to know what it is, because SIBO also mimics other more serious conditions. Don't wanna scare you, but you need to find out what the heck is going on and why. Also, it will help with your treatment. Can SIBO be cured? Is it a chronic condition? If you have it chronically because of maybe an adhesion or a loop in your intestine or diverticulitis, well, is that a sentence for the rest of your life to feel miserable? We're gonna give you some ideas on how to manage the condition. I feel 100% better personally from managing my SIBO than I have ever felt before when I had no idea what it was and I was just letting it go unchecked and untreated and let my symptoms run wild. We're gonna learn about the three types of bacterial gas, SIBO symptoms and what they mean, whether or not you should be tested. Yes. Yes, we cover a lot, but it's all essential and I know you're going to love this episode. I hope you'll listen to it a couple of times. Feel free to take a break if you need to. Come back, listen to it again, pick up where you left off. This could be the game changer for you. Hi, I'm Siobhan Sarna and I am a SIBO patient and an IBS patient happen to be a television host as well. And I'm glad you're here because we're gonna learn about SIBO from one of the best. My doctor, and you're gonna learn as if she was yours too, Dr. Allison Seebecker is here. I am so glad that we're finally doing this, Allison. Me too. Yeah, we have got to get the word out about how to help everybody with their SIBO treatment. Yes. If you don't know what SIBO is, it is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And we're gonna explain everything that that means and implies. And I wanted to get started with asking you, how did you get into SIBO in general? Like, was it just random? Well, it's because I'm a SIBO patient, except I didn't know it. I had to figure it out. I've had SIBO since probably since I was five. And IBS, that's what it was diagnosed as first. And I was really just looking for my own answers, my own understanding. I um, eventually went to naturopathic medical school. I didn't find answers there. I graduated. And so finally, I just devoted myself to studying it because I was suffering really bad and I couldn't do my job, you know, properly. I needed help. I had to figure out answers. That's pretty much it. That is a very short description of a very long story, isn't yeah. it? Because SIBO is never a short story. For some people it is, but for a lot of people it's not. Right. And you deal mainly with complicated cases. Just because I'm a specialist, right. um, you know, that's people wind up at me if they weren't helped beforehand. 
And if you could describe SIBO, like what is it? It's, it's kind of like what it sounds like. It's a rather simple concept that leads to a lot of complications. Uh, it's when there's too many bacteria in the small intestine. They've accumulated there and they're not supposed to do that. Normally bacteria, you know, they come through our nose, our mouth. They're coming through us all the time and they're moving down and through the small intestine down into the large intestine. So just a quick um, intestinal, gastrointestinal anatomy review is that we've got the mouth, the esophagus, the stomach, then the small intestine, then the large intestine. So the small intestine's in the middle of the whole system and there's bacteria supposed to move through them down into the large intestine. That's where they're supposed to accumulate. Most people know we have a lot of beneficial bacteria in our large intestine. They do good things for us. But when they get stuck in the small intestine or if they backflow up there, it's a problem. One thing that became clear to me is that the small intestine is longer than the large intestine. I know. It's not fair that it was it's very confusing. the small intestine. Right. <laughs> I don't like that. It's thinner yeah. than the large intestine, yeah. but it's longer. So it's kind of a misnomer. And so the food goes from your stomach into the small intestine before it makes it to the large intestine. Yeah, and the small intestine is actually where we do most of our digestion and absorption. It's the most important for that. And that's what gets disordered and out of sorts when we have SIBO. All of our digestion and absorption can be messed up, and that is a lot of suffering and problems. If you have leaky gut, is it that your small intestine is leaking? You can have it anywhere. You can have leaky gut anywhere mm -hmm. in the intestinal tract. Okay. You can have leaky esophagus, leaky stomach, leaky small intestine, leaky large intestine. So the word gut means that all of those organs, it's a nonspecific word. Well, it kind of makes sense because it's a lot of tubes. So like, I'm just thinking of plumbing now. Yeah. Like you could have a lot of leaks in, yeah. <laughs> in tubes under the sink, right? Yeah. Okay. So that's, And then that's... those tubes go down into the basement and then they run up to the second floor. Right, so. right. Why should we care about SIBO? Because it's so common, and that's why we're doing this. So many people don't know about the term, so many doctors, so many patients. A lot of people know about the term IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, but what that is is just a collection of symptoms. It's a, a disorder that's defined and diagnosed by its symptoms, which are the same as SIBO, and those are abdominal bloating, so that's when the belly swells out. Mm -hmm very unpleasant, um, constipation or diarrhea or a mixture of the two, um, and then abdominal pain or discomfort. So those are the main symptoms of both of them. But back to your question about why we should care. First of all, those symptoms can be rather severe and they, they always bother somebody when they have them. And so many people have them. So the stats are that 20% of the world's population has IBS and we know from studies that on average, 60% of IBS, the underlying cause is SIBO. So that's a lot of people. And we really do need to care. It's the number one GI tract like illness, right? And IBS complaint. is the number one gastrointestinal condition in the world. And SIBO is the majority cause. So we need to get this information out right. and help people. Which is exactly why we're doing this. Yeah. Right. Is SIBO a new condition? No, um, I'm, I would assume it's been around as long as humans have been around, mm -hmm. but it's probably the terminology or understanding is, is newer. Um, the, the history is that, you know, for as far back as I can look into records you know, from our modern time, people have been talking about it, but with different names. Like one of the names was contaminated bowel syndrome, mm. and there are other names. 
Um, but what really happened was uh, it got brought into a lot of people's awareness when it was linked with IBS. So the condition was known about um, throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s. A lot was um, was in medical uh, literature about it, but it was thought to be obscure and rare. Hmm. Um, so then what happened was Dr. Pimentel and, um, and his colleagues were doing studies and theories, and they decided that they thought that IBS could be caused by SIBO. And they started publishing articles on this, and it was very controversial when they did that because whenever you're going to link something to something that so affects so many people, other doctors are going to have to question it, that's normal, and decide if they think it's true. So now it's been um, about 15 years or more, and the studies are pretty definitive that that is so, that um, SIBO is a cause of IBS, as we know, 60%. So that's what's brought it into awareness. So it's not new, it's just how we're thinking of it that's new, because now we're thinking that it's common and that, in fact, it can cause the most common GI condition of all. So that's what's changed. Well, and also the most common GI condition of all, IBS, has been fairly controversial. Not so much now, but it has been in the past. So you got controversy on top of controversy. Yeah. And, you know, I hear some people talk about how, you know, is SIBO the new candida, like this new trend in holistic health? And I just don't think it is. I think it's something that really should be so mainstream. However... I'll take the fat status because yeah. you get to fat status before you get generally right. accepted. So, like, we're on our way. Get it's to legit. Sign, right? Yeah. It's like, we're getting there. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it is um, – there really shouldn't be any controversy about it as a medical condition because that was well-established in the medical literature before people started really getting excited about it with its connection with IBS and before people started thinking it was a fad. It, I mean, it's a set condition. Uh, so what I what I'd like to see is any of this controversy that's left or attention going into proper research and sp- spreading it so that everybody just knows exactly. Especially because it's so hard to treat. It's tricky. It's very tricky. I also wanted to just talk about how SIBO S I B O is sometimes sometimes called S I B O, and sometimes it's called SIBO, and sometimes people confuse it with, oh, that's just IBS spelled funny, right? Because <laughs> it's basically it has the same letters-ish. And so we don't really care what you call it. It's, you know, something that we all need to know about it. But when you just look at it visually. It pronounce, it, pronounce it however you want. Right, I don't, don't care. You know, I just pronounce it the way that the leading medical researcher in SIBO pronounces it. And that's Dr. Pimentel. Right. And he pronounces it SIBO, so that's what I say. Sounds good. But people, sometimes people say SIBO right. and SIBO. I don't care. And what are the symptoms? Uh, they're the same symptoms as IBS, which are uh, bloating. I know we just said this, but I'll say it again. Um, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, mixture of the two, or abdominal pain or discomfort. But then there's more. And basically, you can have the whole host of digestive symptoms affect you if you have SIBO, and it can be from the SIBO. So there can also be acid reflux. There can be nausea. There can be a feeling that food is sitting in the stomach and won't go down, kind of like a brick or a rock. Very, very uncomfortable. All of that uh, sort of things can be called dyspepsia. So dyspepsia is part of it. That just means sort of upper stomach, uncomfortable, yucky symptoms soon after eating. Mm -hmm. There can also be excessive burping and farting. Uh, There can be fatigue. Probably one of the most common symptoms is food reactions or food sensitivities. Uh, And mostly this will wind up being carbohydrates. However, carbohydrates one of the three main macronutrients of our food groups, three main food groups, uh, it's a vast, huge array of foods. So it can feel like it's everything. 
Right, and it's the tastiest part. (laughs) All the best stuff. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, but a lot of problems with food sensitivities. And then there can be mood symptoms, um, depression and anxiety. I often see um, in patients that anxiety is more common than depression, but both are possible. There There are some studies to show that anxiety tends to be a bit more common. Very unpleasant. Um, And then there can be the symptoms of leaky gut because SIBO can cause leaky gut. So there can be really any reaction to food. That's really what the leaky gut symptoms are. That is systemic, not so much gastrointestinal. So it could be like nasal mucus, uh, skin rashes, uh, brain fog, or issues with cognition. Um, There could be uh, respiratory problems like sneezing or even asthma uh, that comes after you eat food. So those would be the, the leaky gut symptoms. And I think we could just stop right there. That's enough. That's an, as, so right. It's like, oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I know. You're right. The one that really got me was the anemia. Yeah. And we did, that's like technically we'd call that a sign. So uh-huh. it's, like, it's like another medical condition that right. can be caused by it. So some of the signs are anemia. And it could just be not even full anemia, but um, just low ferritin, which are our iron stores. If your doctor's testing for that, uh, which I hope they are. Well, no, that's a good point. Ask your doctor to test for iron. Ask your doctor to test for your ferritin levels if you think you may have SIBO. And the other thing is, okay, maybe your gynecologist has tested you for iron and ferritin and it's low. And they're like, well, when was your last period? Do you bleed heavily? And you're like, no. And "Mm, I don't know what this is all about. I don't know. No, it seems abnormal. I don't know. Man, my my gut's kind of funny. You know, that could be a sign that you have SIBO. So absolutely. That's a major sign. Right. It's really common. Um, and the other one that I was just thinking of that I had forgotten was fatty stools. It's called steatorrhea. So that's uh, because we can have problems also with our fat absorption from SIBO. So you can see fat coming out, not getting absorbed in your body that you're eating, coming out in the stools. Um, and also there can be other diseases that you have. They can be signs of SIBO because SIBO has been associated with a lot of other conditions and it has... It has a couple ways it's associated, but there are just a lot of conditions and diseases that seem to coexist with SIBO. So some of them would be like acne rosacea. So that can be a sign of SIBO, actually. Mm-hmm. And where you would want to investigate that is if you have tried treatment uh, for one of these associated diseases and it, it has failed uh, standard treatment, like say for rosacea, then you'd want to go, hmm, could I have SIBO? check it out, and then what you do is you treat the SIBO, and often the associated condition, the rosacea, will get better. So in the case of these associated diseases like rosacea, there are studies showing those exact statistics. Like, okay, so many of these people with rosacea have SIBO, and when we treat the SIBO, this percent get better. And you can find a list of all of these associated diseases on my website, SIBO Info, which is just free and there for people's educational purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got all them listed with the links to the studies. That's so helpful. And feel free to like take a day or two off to go into this website. <laughs> but no, it's, it's a fantastic site that has a lot of in-depth information that you look at it initially and you're like, oh, that's a nice site. And then you start clicking the links and you're like, whoa, rabbit hole all over the place. But it's great because it saves you so much time from surfing the web and also saves you so much time because you aren't going to be misdirected with misinformation. And you really need to go to a reliable source on the web because there's a lot of misinformation out there. And there's a lot of help, but you want to make sure it's right because otherwise it's going to be a waste. And so before we leave the associated diseases, I'll just mention a few others. Uh, restless leg syndrome, 
fibromyalgia, chronic proctitis. What is that? <laughs> That's in the male anatomy. Uh -huh. It's um, the prostate, and it can be chronically inflamed. It's very, you know, who, why would we think that these conditions would go along with what does SIBO have to do with a leg? Right? Exactly. Right. Now, with um, restless leg syndrome, we think, we postulate that the connection is through the anemia. Uh, but in a lot of the cases, we don't know what the connection is. We just know that these diseases are associated. There's studies to show, gosh, this many people also, these two things go together. And what I take away from that is that there's this old saying, a medical saying, that all disease begins in the gut. Mm -hmm. um, there are those sayings about a lot of things, but there's the one about all disease begins in the gut, and that's where this can start to make sense. How can all of these diseases come out of something like SIBO or be related to it? That would be, would be why. If the, if the digestion is disordered, it can lead to so many other problems in the body. Thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Just Thrive Probiotics. I wasn't a believer, I have to admit. I thought all probiotics were the same because in the past I had taken them and didn't really notice a difference. Well, once I read the studies on Just Thrive, which were recommended to me from several friends in this health space. It started with an old root canal that needed to be extracted. I took the Just Thrive with the massive dose of antibiotics and it helped me so much. I couldn't believe it. So I want you to know about it because if it made a difference for me and I'm a tough case, chances are it's gonna make an impact on you. Obviously you can tell I'm a fan. I hope you'll investigate it for yourself. That's Just Thrive Probiotics. And thank you so much to them for supporting this community. We love them for it. How serious is SIBO? I think it's always serious in that it's a problem. It's a disorder. It's not normal. We shouldn't be having this circumstance. But in terms of severity, it has a spectrum. It can be mild. And so, I mean, I still think it's serious because you have it, but it's, it's not fatal. It is not a fatal condition, and it can be very mild. However, it can run the full spectrum, and it can be very severe. So people can have very severe, they can actually be disabled in terms of not being able to work from the symptoms. Um, and others, it's an annoyance. But so. it's a chronic annoyance. Not for everybody. Really? I know. Right. <laughs> so uh, we, can, we can learn about like how acute or chronic is it. Um, from this study that was done, the Target 3 study, it was done on over 2,000 patients. And they looked at that. They looked at how many did it resolve quickly or not. And what they found was one-third of SIBO patients resolve pretty quickly, and two-thirds don't. So the majority of SIBO patients, two-thirds, it's a chronic condition. But it is nice to know that there is that one-third, and I have had the chance to see some of those people sometimes. And for them, it's, it, can get, it can get resolved within months. That is hopeful. And for everybody who it's not getting resolved as quickly, what would you say as like a message of hope? Just keep going. Because what I see, that's who I work with, those people. And what I see, sort of I'd say the prognosis, is that as you keep working on getting your test negative, I know we haven't gone into testing yet, but mm -hmm. um, getting the SIBO gone, uh, it, it very often recurs. And we can, we can get into that. But just keep working on First get it gone, then work on if it recurs, and just keep working on that. And over time, what I see is people's quality of life just raising up. And um, each time they, they get it gone, they feel better than they did before. And they think to themselves, I didn't know I could feel that good. And then the times from when they, where they relapse get shorter. And then when we give them treatments, they respond to those quicker. 
and easier. So I would say just please don't give up. Just keep going. And there's hope. What exactly causes SIBO? This is a big topic. It's a huge topic. And it's something that so many people are confused about and they desperately want the answer. It's, it's one of the most important questions because really for any condition, because if we can figure out really what the cause is, we can aim our treatments there and possibly get it cured, like really get it gone. Uh, I, I've researched this for years and it was complicated. And so what I like to do is organize, organize it into two categories, underlying cause and then risk factors, which I would also call causes. So uh, underlying cause, risk factors, which are also causes. So the underlying causes are when the body's own natural protections against getting bacterial accumulation in the small intestine, it's when they would fail. So those protections, those natural protections are um, hydrochloric acid of the stomach, uh, enzymes that come out in um, the stomach, but also the small intestine, bile that comes out of the gallbladder into the small intestine, all of these things can kill bacteria or arrest their growth. So they're all there to, to decontaminate, really, the small intestine. Then there's the um, immune system. Of course, we all know that the immune system works at fighting against bacterial invasion. Um, and that can be both local and systemic. The, we can think about it that way. There's the ileocecal valve, which is a, a physical barrier between the small and large intestine. Small intestine coming first, large intestine coming later. So that prevents bacterial backflow from the large intestine because there's so many bacteria down there. But probably the two most important protections are the migrating motor complex and then just the normal anatomy of the small intestine. So I'll take that one first. The normal anatomy, um, it's designed, the small intestine is designed anatomically, structurally to have things pass through it. So if something were to impede the flow, um, push, push on it or a kink or something like that in the tube, then bacteria could back up as they're trying to move through. And the migrating motor complex, maybe the most important of all, that is a form of peristalsis or motility that occurs in the small intestine but not when we're eating. We think of peristalsis as when we're eating food and moving that food down. This is different. This is when there's no food and it's all clear and we're trying to clear it. Uh, Dr. Pimentel says it's like when we wash the dishes after we eat. You know, there's a little bit left on the plate and we're washing it off. So it might be a little bit of debris left. Now the migrating motor complex comes through and sweeps any debris and any bacteria, that's just one of its main functions, out of the small intestine down into the large intestine so it's vitally important. It also provides a downward current. Imagine like a river flowing, a downward current against all the bacteria that are down below in the large intestine that might want to come, come backward and upward. So if, if that fails, um, then there's nothing to move the bacteria out. And we think that's the number one underlying cause is that it's a motility disorder. And we think the second most common cause would be a structural problem, um, some sort of compression um, partial obstruction or various other things that could block the flow of the tube. So now those are the underlying causes. And it's very important to understand like structurally and functionally what could be wrong in the body to allow the circumstance to happen. But what most people think of as the cause is what I would call risk factors. And there are categories like diseases, uh, drugs, um, other lifestyle things, um, maybe like stress, genetics, uh, surgery, um, and I said diseases already, right? Because that's probably the biggest category, disease. So these are things that can occur 
to create those circumstances that I just mentioned. So there are diseases that can create deficient migrating motor complex. There are diseases that cause structural um, anomalies. For instance, like cancer, a tumor can grow and compress the small intestine. Um, a disease like scleroderma will stop the migrating motor complex in the small intestine. Um, there are drugs that can slow the motility. Um, there are surgeries that can come and adhesions, which are like scar bands, can grow and make a compression. Or maybe there could be cut nerves and we need the nerves to make that motility flow. So there are a huge, a huge variety of circumstances that are of diseases and other things that are risk factors that can cause the underlying causes. So the causes, being risk factors, are vast, really vast. The underlying causes are a pretty small number, um, structurally and functionally. Com kind of a complicated answer, but... But it's a complicated condition. It is. It's a complicated condition. What exactly are the mechanisms, or how are exactly these symptoms caused? The main way the symptoms are caused is from, is from gas, bacterial gas, gas that comes from these microbes. So uh, what happens is when, when we eat, uh, we are supposed to normally break down, that would be digest, and then absorb our food into our body. Uh, but a portion of our food will not be absorbed because it's indigestible to us, and that would be called fiber. And normally that will move down through, through the small intestine down into the large intestine. The large intestine is where all the bacteria are, and they can eat it. They have the digestive enzymes to break apart fiber. We don't. Humans don't. And so they can break it apart. They digest it, and they eat it, and then they make gas out of it. So fiber, not a lot of people know this, but fiber is a carbohydrate. And it turns out that carbohydrates are bacteria's primary food. It's their number one food. It's the thing they love the most. I get it. <laughs> I love carbohydrates, too. So when um, most bacteria, when they eat, they make acid and gas. So gas is one of their end products. So we can always blame any kind of gas that comes out of us on them. Just want you to know that. So when they make this gas, normally in the large intestine, it's a, a normal amount, and we just expel it as farting. And sometimes it's, we don't even really know we're farting because it's just so small a little bit throughout the day. Just normal to expel that gas. So then we don't get bloated. But in SIBO, what happens is the bacteria is translocated up into the small intestine, or they've just accumulated coming from the top down, and they're in the small intestine. So now when we eat a meal with carbohydrates, the bacteria are right there, sitting right up high, and they can eat them too. So then they, they do, and then they turn them into gas. And then that gas can swell in our small intestines and bloat us. And if the bloating could be quite high up, it could be low down, but it can be anywhere in the hole because the small intestine actually coils and covers around our entire abdomen from the, the top to the bottom. So then we can get all this bloating um, and distension. The gas can also cause the other symptoms, though, because um, the methane gas, there's, there's three types of bacterial gas, hydrogen, methane, and hydrogen sulfide that are the primary ones. The methane gas has been shown to actually cause constipation. It, um, it can slow the motility. In fact, it can even cause reverse hypermotility in the small intestine. So that means backward, upward motions of the small intestine, totally abnormal. If it does that, some symptoms that can go with that are nausea, acid reflux, and burping. Now, sometimes you'll have those symptoms even if you don't have methane gas. But, um, so, but it's pretty interesting to know that constipation, acid reflux, nausea, and burping 
can all be uh, directly associated with methane gas. Um, the other gases, um, they can lead to, like hydrogen has been linked with diarrhea, and we don't know the exact mechanism there, but we do know that it's linked to it. And then pain can come um, very often from gas because the intestines are sensitive to pressure. And, you know, gas, imagine like a balloon, it's pressure pushing out. So our intestines sense that and usually sense it as uncomfortable. So it can cause pain. The other thing is that the muscles um, in the abdomen can contract against the gas and muscular contraction causes some pretty bad pain. So the pain in SIBO can be mild, it can be discomfort, or it can be really bad pain, pain that wakes people up at night and even sends them to the emergency room. It just depends on how their body is reacting to the gas. Um, and the last thing is visceral hypersensitivity. That's a feature of IBS, and most, most people with SIBO can be said to have IBS. And um, it's not fully well understood, but what it means is that the people with it feel sensations in their organs, which normally we do not. We don't normally pick up feelings down there. And they're, they're felt as uncomfortable. So like we can feel the gas moving through and it hurts. So that's where the pain can come from. The acid reflux can also just come from um, gas back pressure. So we're just pushing acid up. Um, and then the excessive burping and farting can just come because there's excessive gas that's trying trying to get out and is being moved out. Now, interestingly, not everyone with SIBO will have excessive burping and farting. And sometimes we're pleased when they start burping and farting because the gas is being held in there, causing pain, causing bloating. And we know it's a good sign for those people when we start seeing burping or farting because it's getting out and they usually feel better. So, But that almost be like a different kind of understanding for motility. I mean, it's moving. That we're pleased, right. yeah. yeah. Yeah, so when somebody does have excessive burping and farting, we at least it knows, know that some of their motility's on board and working because they are getting some of the gas out. When it comes to a low FODMAP diet, is that trying to create less fermentation in the intestine so they don't expand as much? Yeah, so the situation with all SIBO diets is, the sort of the undercurrent to understand here is that all carbohydrates can be fermented by bacteria into gas. Um, and fermentation is just the medical word, the technical word for bacterial eating. We're just eating, mm -hmm. and then the, we call it fermentation. Um, and, you know, there's different types of fermentation that, that have different end products. We're all familiar with the type of fermentation that makes alcohol. Yeast will ferment uh, carbohydrates into alcohol. Bacteria ferment into acids and gas. Um, yeast can make some gas, too. So, um, so all of these diets, what they're trying to do is just reduce the overall carbohydrate load so that there's less carbohydrates to be fermented into gas. And then that will lower the symptoms because primarily it's the gas that's causing symptoms. There are some other things, but that's the predominance of symptoms that comes from that. The thing about the SIBO diets is that, um, you know, there's no really one right way to approach the reduction of the carbohydrates because the the right way would be to remove them all if we wanted to have no symptoms at all. And then that wouldn't be very good because then we would have no carbohydrates in our diet, which is undesirable and unhealthy in, in many circumstances. So what these diets are doing is they're just fiddling around, deciding based on theories, which ones they want to remove. And so they're all going to have varying degrees of success because they're not removing them all. You know, right. but um, I do just want to say that they're amazing. All of these stats are amazing. Their success rates are anywhere from sixty to like ninety percent. Really incredible. The success rates of the antimicrobial treatments that we use for SIBO are the same. 
So diet is right up there with it. I mean, it's one of the, it's one of the best tools patients have for managing their symptoms when they have SIBO. When you're getting into the phase of killing the bacteria that's overgrown, diet, is it enough at that stage? Um, I haven't seen it. I right. haven't seen it be enough. I mean, what, what I haven't seen is I haven't seen diet be the only treatment for SIBO and remove the SIBO. I, ha I haven't seen it. I, I'm hesitating because I want to see it. I know, I <laughs> and I'm it like, um, has someone seen it? I would love to see a case. But um, it just doesn't seem to be enough. We seem to need to do more than just um, reduce their food and starve them. We need to actually kill them more aggressively to remove mm -hmm. them out. And I think the reason for that is because the bacteria, um, they can eat the carbohydrates that exist on the lining of our small intestine. And they do, actually. There are studies to show that they do that. They actually break down our own digestive enzymes, which are made partly from carbohydrates, that sit along our intestinal lining. It's just a, a terrible circumstance. And that's one of the another reasons why we get some of the symptoms we do is due to the damage that the bacteria inflict upon our small intestine lining. Can it eventually be healed, the small intestine damage? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, the small intestine and the intestines have a turnover and heal rate that is very quick, like days. So if we remove the cause, the damaging circumstance, unless there's a reason that someone has a disease preventing them from normal healing, wound healing, it can be repaired quickly. Thank you, Dr. C. Becker, so much for being here at the SIBO SOS podcast and for all the work you've done with me to generate this interest, this information, this inspiration about SIBO, SIBO SOS Summit Part 1, SIBO SOS Summit Part 2, the IBS and SIBO SOS Summit, and the Digestion SOS, that's a mouthful, docuseries would not have happened the way it has happened if it wasn't for your support, help, and love and passion for these projects. So heartfelt thanks to you and total public acknowledgement of your contributions. And thank goodness uh, we met because I also consider you a dear, dear friend. I also want to mention the new IBS Smart Blood Test is out. You may have heard me talk about it before. It's pretty amazing, guys. It looks for a specific blood marker that is present when you have post-infectious IBS. What is post-infectious IBS? It's one of the most common types of IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, and it's caused by changes to the gut after about a food poisoning. Look, I've had so many people say, but I've never had food poisoning, Siobhan. Trust me. <laughs> if you've ever had upset tummy, digestive distress, oh, did you think the fish was bad last night? Oh, my stomach was kind of upset. No, I didn't think so. Okay, maybe it was fine, maybe it wasn't, but you still had diarrhea. You really need to know about this test and do it if you have unresolved SIBO and IBS, because it will tell you what's going on with your migrating motor complex, which in a nutshell sweeps the bacteria out of your small intestine, diminishing the overgrowth. That was a very big concept. I'm pretty proud of myself for breaking it down that well. Okay, this test is a revolution because up until now, we had no way for certain to know if you did have post-infectious IBS. So now with certainty, you can know what you're dealing with. Why is that important? Because it means you'll get on the right path to healing faster and you'll know you need to take a prokinetic. If you don't know what that means, listen into these podcasts. Your doctor can order the IBS Smart Test for you and your insurance could perhaps even cover it. Go to ibssmart.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. If you love the podcast, please don't forget to leave a rating and review and subscribe. Every bit helps us get this important information out to more people. And that is my mission 
And I want to help you accomplish your mission in life by feeling better so you can do what you were put here for. See you next time.